Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here. And if you brought a Bible with you, would you open that Bible to Genesis chapter 37? Genesis chapter 37. We are working our way through Genesis, have been in the book of Genesis for many months now. And today we're actually embarking on what would be the closing segment or the closing narrative of Genesis. Genesis 37 through 50 is going to follow the descendants of one man, Jacob. Jacob's descendants, 12 sons, each becoming a different tribe in the nation that will become Israel. We're going to follow their lives. And we're going to pay particular attention to one son, the son of Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 37, we're going to learn a little bit about Joseph as we get started. Now, I have to share this with you. I found this so comical that the Lord in his sovereignty would show us this passage with Joseph and his old, older brothers, and they have this crazy family disconnect. Like, they, like when you hear what happens to Joseph because of his brothers um, and, and the crazy things that families can do to one another... I I giggled that it was Membership Sunday and people are joining the church to become a part of the Renaissance family. And when I read this passage, I was secretly praying, oh Lord, may we never be like Joseph's brothers. And when you see this story, you'll understand why. So let's start in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. And it says this, that these are the generations of Jacob. And here we go, the, the last little part of Genesis. Joseph was 17 years old. That's significant to us. He's a a young man, but still a teenager. He was 17 years old, and he was out pasturing the flock with his older brothers. And it says that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers um, to their father, Jacob. So here's what we know about Joseph so far. He's a teenager, and he's a tattler, right? (laughs) He, He tattles on his brother. But if you were to look into the original language here, it's not just that he said something bad about his brothers, like, Dad, you need to pay attention because they're doing this, or Dad, make sure they don't get by because they've been doing that. No, it's, it's something altogether different. There's a picture that, that, he's, that Joseph is, in fact, making up things about them, that he's lying about them to his father. And he brings these bad reports to their father. And then it says in verse 3 that Israel or Jacob, Jacob and Israel, the same person. God changed his name to Israel. Won't go over that again. But it says that Jacob or Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son in his old age. We don't read here is what is also part of this story is that Jacob had a number of wives and Rachel was his favorite wife. It's sort of unusual to say that in our world today, isn't it? (laughs) But his favorite wife, Rachel, couldn't have children until until Jacob was well old in age, and she gave birth to two sons, only two, Joseph and Benjamin. And because of this, Joseph was the first son from Rachel. He loved him more than anyone. 
And because of this, it says in verse 4, that when the brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than them, they hated him for it. That they had disdain for their younger brother. I mean, for many reasons. I was thinking about this this week. I'm a younger brother, and I wondered if I tattled on my older brother. Probably, yeah. If I could remember, did I make up lies about my brother? Of course I did. Sure I did. You know what I mean? But I don't know that my brother ever hated me for it. But here we're seeing the brothers hate him. I want to pray for us. I want to pause right here because the, the next few things that we read are really going to show that family dynamic that can escalate into not just hatred and vitriol, but to jealousy and to even murder. And I, I'm, I'm fearful that if we're not mindful that the way we interact with members of our own family um, that we can cause harm as we mistreat one another. So I just want to pray for us that we would not miss this God-ordained moment. Is that okay with you? So let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I do thank you for our time together. We do not believe in happenstance or coincidence, but in the, the very sovereign ways of God, that you have brought people here um, because you wanted them here, and they are hearing the message that you want them to hear. God, I pray that you help my words to, to seat themselves in our hearts, that we would be encouraged by you, that we would know more about you, and most importantly, we would learn to ha- how to have a better family relationship with one another. The Bible is a great tool for us to understand how to live and how to know you better. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and for your son, Jesus, by which we have a relationship with you. That our relationship is is firmly held in the work that Jesus has provided for us, not in our own works, because we fail you time and time again, but Jesus has never failed. And we, we cling to Jesus in our relationship with you. We thank you for this night. Help us to understand In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The Bible has a lot to say about dreams, dreams and or visions. And we see dreams all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, Jacob, the the father of these 12 sons, has had a dream of sorts that we studied a number of weeks ago. It was a dream of a vision or a vision of a stairwell going from earth to heaven and angels descending and ascending on it. And in the New Testament, we hear of dreams and visions. Paul the Apostle had this vision where he saw a man in Macedonia calling him over to help him. Peter the Apostle had a vision of some like food falling out of the sky, a long story. But know this, what God was informing Peter of is that he was going to open the gospel or the good news of Jesus or the salvation message of Jesus to non-Jewish people which blew the Jewish mind at that thought, that that God, there's no way God would want to save those people, those Gentiles, wait for it, those uncircumcised Gentiles. God would never want to do that. But in these visions and dreams, we learn a couple things. We learn about who God is. Jacob learned that God is not aloof and disconnected and far away, but he is connected to the earth and his creation. And he does send angels to and fro to, to meet out his will on the earth. We do hear that God does have a heart for people, that God does want to save people. We begin to hear the plans that God has for people's lives. And Joseph is one said person, 17-year-old punk, in my opinion, and God gives him a dream of sorts. Verse 5, it says, Joseph dreams a dream. And then he goes and tells it to his brothers. Of course he did. And they hated him even more. (laughs) 
And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And then behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more, the Bible says. And then we see a doublet here. God sends another dream. So I just remind you that oftentimes when we see things repeated in Scripture, it was well before the times of highlighters and underlining things, that God is repeating things that his people might not miss them. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. And he says it again and again. And, and Joseph has a second dream, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. And he tells this one to his brothers. He says, I've dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers this time, it says that his father rebuked him. Joseph, we've talked about this. Knock it off with your brothers. Knock it off with these dreams. I don't know what's happening with you, but I've told you once. And he rebukes him. Now, if we have time, I'd like to come back to that. But that's a significant piece of this story. But not only does his father rebuke him, but in verse 11, we see two possible roads of response when people come to us and share with us the dreams or visions that they believe God has given them. The first road of response is this. It's contempt. Says his brothers became jealous of him, become even more frustrated with him. The second road is is maybe contemplation, which is what his father says. It says his fathers kept this saying in his mind that he he meditated on it. He considered it. Now here's what I think: Jacob has had a vision or a dream from God, and so when his younger son comes to him and says, "I've had a dream or a vision," he's more ready to receive that. He's ready to believe it, even though he is a 17 year old kid right but he's ready to receive it he's not quick to dismiss it this might be something that's significant in your life in fact I think in this moment both the father and the brothers are beginning to learn that these are no mere dreams because I've had Mexican the night before but these are in fact dreams from God himself and I think this is what the brothers pick up on and no longer are they having disdain and hatred towards the brother but this thing spirals into jealousy that of all the sons God loves him more. Dad loves him more. God chose him instead of us. And jealousy leaks into their hearts. And this is more than I wish I had what he had. This is deeper than that. This is the jealousy that the Bible talks about, that when it escalates, it causes harm to other people. It was, it was Cain who was jealous of his brother Abel, and he killed him for it. It was the same envy and or jealousy that the chief priests levied against Jesus when they brought him before the the leaders to have him executed. This jealousy, if left unchecked, will cause harm to Joseph. I think think what I want us to understand is that I want to make sure that we're people that when someone brings an idea, a vision, a dream that maybe God has given them, that we not move quickly to dismiss it, but to hear them and to listen to them. Fast forward a little bit, then Jacob, the father, sends all of the sons minus Joseph to send the the flocks out into the fields to pasture them. And he sends them into a part of the country that's kind of a bad part of town. It's the hood part of the, the country, if you will. And after a while, it says here in verse 14 that he sends his brother Joseph out there to see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and then bring word back to me. Go find out if everyone's safe and sound and then let me know. 
You can imagine what the brothers are feeling when they see Joseph coming around the corner in his little famous, like, technicolor dream coat that his dad had made him, this coat of many colors. And when Joseph rounds the bend and comes to the brothers, you, you can almost hear the disdain in their voice um, in verse 19 when they say these words. They say to one another, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. Now, in, in my time of study these last many weeks, I, I read the chapters before this chapter. I read the chapters after this chapter, but I kept coming back to this one single line. Here comes the dreamer. And something stuck out to me, and I want to share it with you if you, if you give me time. Um, I think what's happening is they're dehumanizing their brother here. They're no longer calling him my younger brother, Joseph. They're no, no longer calling him even a family member. They're no longer looking at him for the person that he is, but more for the actions that he's committed or the things that he's done. They begin to label Joseph. They begin to say, here's the dreamer, not Joseph. He no longer has a face and a name. And, and I warn us that when we begin to label people as such, if we begin to put them into stereotypical silos as such, that we can sometimes lose their humanity, and that's, that's a real quick step to then be, to begin to mistreat people. I'm not saying I think labels are bad. I think labels are fine. I think we need labels. In fact, if you were to ever invite me to a cocktail party, I don't know if that's still a thing, but I'd love to come to a cocktail party. And if I ever met someone that I do not know, I say, hello, my name is Jeff. You say, hello, your name is whatever your name is. And then we have this discussion. You know what the next questions are, right? Where are you from? What do you do? And immediately we begin putting people into buckets or into, into silos, if you will, beginning to understand this so we can have this sort of framework of how to deal with them or to think about them or to know them better. If I were to come up to you and Say hello, and you said, my name's Frank, and I'm from Cerro Gordo. Immediately, I think badly of you. I'm just saying. <laughs> Why Cerro Gordo? I have no idea. I had a friend of mine who was here this morning. He goes, Jeff, I'm from Cerro Gordo, and I don't claim it either. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, my name's Sally, and I'm a teacher. Oh, okay, immediately, I begin to think things of you. I know things about you. I know, number one, you're educated. You've went to school and you've graduated, that you work with children possibly, and you probably don't do so because you love the money. Who teaches for the money? There's a call almost on your life to help students, to help others, to be a, a part of a solution in the world today. And, and immediately I began to think of them. Again, I'm not saying labels are bad, but hear me, they must forever and always be secondary in how we deal with people. Do you hear that? They must be secondary. The person is primary, always and forever. They have a name. They have a face. They are someone's daughter or son, someone's mom, someone's dad, someone's brother. They're not just a label of sorts. It's easy for us to throw people into labels and to just sort of dismiss them. Well, that's the, that's the adulterer. That's the divorced person, there's the addict, there's the felon, there's the on and on. I was talking to Pastor Joe this morning. I said, Joe, what are some, some labels that you think of that you throw people in? And he says, religious zealot. And then his next one was jerk. Like they're somehow connected to each other, <laughs> which I do not disagree. <laughs> he, and I said, well, well, how about labels like this? Conservative. I mean, depending on who you vote for, people begin to automatically sum you up. 
That's why I don't try to tell people who I vote for. If you were bold enough or so brazen to ask me, I'd probably tell you, but I would wonder why you're so brazen and bold to ask me. <laughs> Liberal, conservative, on and on it goes. Evangelical. There's a word that'll sting. What's funny is I've been in the church for some 20 years and, and I don't even know what some of the words mean that we use. It's a real story. Evangelical, if you watch the news, and I don't much, but I know this, that the word evangelical, evangelical Christian, sort of has a bad meaning these days. When people use it, they use it with disdain. Oh, those evangelicals, you know, those people. And yet I have friends who call themselves evangelicals. And so I began to wonder, Jeff, are you an evangelical? And I have no idea. <laughs> I do not know, and I do not know because I don't know the definition of an evangelical. So I spent an entire work day, my wife is sitting right here, and she's wondering what I do all week. Well, this is what I did. An entire day Googling what is an evangelical. And here's what I found. There is no single definition. There is no governing body that establishes what an evangelical is. What I learned is that evangelicals and evangelical Christians, they affirm or ascribe to a certain set of beliefs about things. And I'll share a few, a few of them with you. The first thing that they believe or affirm is this, is that they have a very high regard for Jesus. They would say it is all about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God the Father to the earth to die upon a cross, to be buried in a grave, to be raised on the third day, third day to, to remove the consequences of sin on our lives. No longer will we be objects of God's wrath by sinners saved by grace. They believe this. And I said to myself, oh no, I think I'm an evangelical because I believe this too. Evangelicals have a high view of Scripture. That they believe that scripture is God's word, that God speaks to us through the scripture. And in, and in, in God's word, it, it holds on to the truth, that there is not just varied truth here and there and there and here, but there is a truth that is given to us by God, and we, we can find it here. And if we need help in our lives socially, politically, ethically, morally, we can look to scripture for help. And I said to myself, I do that too. Thirdly, they believe that no person has a relationship with God based on their religious affiliation. That you are not a Christian or cannot have a relationship with God just because you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox or, wait for it, Lutheran or Pentecostal or anything. You must have a born-again experience with the Lord. That's what evangelicals think. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. What must I do? And he says, you must be born again. We believe in that. And because of that, point number four is evangelicals are very missionally minded. They desperately want to go tell other people about Jesus, the good news or gospel of Jesus. They are motivated to do so. So when they look to silos of people, felons, etc., they don't discount them. They run to them and help them. Churches establish mission work in prisons. Churches establish missions works with blended families to help them understand and navigate what that looks like to be divorced and still be a Christian and, and on and on it goes. They, they go to help people who are in abuse situations and, and addicts overcome their addictions and on and on it goes. We no longer just look at people and go, nah, nah, God doesn't care about them because they, the reality is he does. They're missionally minded. And that leads to that last point. Every person 
is worthy of hearing the gospel of Jesus. Every person is worthy to be loved and encouraged into the things of God. Every person, no matter what past they drag with them into the room, is worthy to receive God's kindness and forgiveness and all of that. That evangelicals look to the nature of a person and, and read what Genesis tells us, that all mankind is made in the image of God. That we are made in his image. And that's what we focus on first. If you need labels to help navigate your relationships, have fun with them. That's fine. I do not have a problem with that. But they must not be the primary thing by which you, you deal with someone. And that's what the brothers do in this situation. Here comes the dreamer. He's dehumanized, and now you can, you can quickly see what they decide to do next, verse 20. Come now, let's kill him. <laughs> what? What? Let's kill him? Who thinks about this thing? Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and then we will see what will become of his dreams. Oh my goodness, this is crazy. I mean, whether they fully believe that these dreams are from God or not, but they're, they're willing to even step on the plans that God has for Joseph's life because of their jealousy and hatred towards their brother. But verse 21, it says, but their brother, their oldest brother, Reuben, heard all of this, and he rescues jo Joseph out of their hands saying, let's not take his life. And so he says to him, don't shed the blood, just throw him into a pit, just beat him up a little bit, throw him into a pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And now he says this, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. He thinks, I'll just come back later after everyone's cooled down, everyone's simmered down, and I'll just rescue him out. Let's not kill him. And then it says in verse 25, they, they throw him into a pit, right? They take his coat off of him, throw him into a pit. And verse 25, it says, then they sat, sat down to have lunch. <laughs> just whatever, that guy's gone. Verse 26, then when the other brothers said, well, what profit is it to us if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him. They'd seen some Ishmaelites traveling through, trading, going down to Egypt. Let's just sell him. Verse 28, then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph out of the pit, lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to them for 20 shekels of silver and they took him down to Egypt. Now, Reuben was gone at this time. When Reuben comes back, he goes to the pit and he saw that Joseph was not in the pit, and it says that he tore his clothes, and he mourned. And he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. Where shall I go now? See, older brother was in charge of the family at this point. I've got to go back and tell dad that he's gone. They take Joseph's robe. They slaughter a goat, dip the robe in blood, and then they send that robe back to their father. And it says that when, in verse 34, that Jacob, when he saw the the bloody robe, he tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his sons for many days. And then the last verse that I'll spend time on is verse 36. But meanwhile, while all of this is taking place, while everyone believes that Joseph is, or his dad believes that Joseph has been killed, meanwhile, the Midianites have sold Joseph um, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Uh, here we go. Um, when I began to understand 
that God is calling me to, to love people and to serve people the way that Jesus has come and modeled for us, I began to, to question some of the things that some of the people closest to me were um, uh, applauding and or encouraging. What I found is even some of my friends with the best intentions have found themselves sort of labeling people in such a way and they began to treat people um, that I thought was oftentimes not very Christian. And then, then the question became, I wonder if I've done that too. In fact, in, in all of my study in this, the, the craziest thing about all of this that we can be comforted is, in is this, is that even despite the evil ways of humanity, God will still allow his will to be set forth on the earth. God's way will prevail, yes? Yes, it will prevail, even when people like his brothers do wicked things. And we can find comfort in that. In fact, some would argue that we don't even need to choose which way to go. It doesn't matter which way we choose, because God's will is going to happen on the earth anyways. Now, I disagree with that, because I still think there's a right way to live. There's still a right way to choose. I think we should be people, much like Reuben, who choose life over death always. Yes? If, please not. I'm a little nervous for you guys. Yes, choose life. Thank you. So if I can share just a quick story with you guys, and I know in, do, in doing so, I'm making myself very vulnerable to you. And, and I know that some of you are going to throw me into a stereotypical silo because of it, and your thinking of me will drastically change. But I pray you hear me out first. I had a moment when I was confronted with this idea that somehow we can justify our thinking on how we treat certain people, much like the brothers did. Remember verse 10, the father rebuked him. So as they're about to throw him into the pit, they're probably all looking at one another. Yeah, yeah, and dad was mad at him too. Remember, remember? And they're beginning to justify their actions, coming together almost in mob mentality to harm another person or to rejoice in the harm of another person. So December 30th, 2006, I'd gathered in a, a large arena with about 10,000 other young adults, and we were worshiping God. This was a worship conference, and the band was playing, and there's great teachings, and it was wonderful. It was five days set apart to worship God towards the end of the year. It was a wonderful experience. And on December 30th, a man walked out on the stage in the middle of the worship set, and he grabbed a microphone, and he stopped the band. And everyone's like, What's happening? Now, the man that grabs the microphone was part of the people putting on the event here. And he says, we have just got word that this very hour, they are going to hang Saddam Hussein. And the room erupted in applause. I wish I could tell you whether or not I applauded too. I, I don't remember. I don't remember specifics. I just remember this event, that the room applauded. A man's going to lose his life. Now, this man on the stage with the microphone shushed everyone. He goes, no, 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 shush, listen. And he begins to talk about how every person is made in the image of God. And I'm screaming on the inside, but you don't know how evil this man is. You don't know the things that he's done. He has been found guilty in an international court. He is, and on and on it goes. And I'm justifying my reasons. And he keeps coming back to this person is made in the image of God. And then he did something so bold, it, it, it knocked me out of my shoes, literally. He said, I want us to stop and pray for him right now. wish I could tell you if I prayed for him or not. I don't know. I don't remember. 
I just know that after I left that place, I was confronted with that reality. Have I so become siloed myself into a certain way of thinking that it's easy for me to discount another human being based on the things that he's done? Does he deserve death? Probably. Should I rejoice over it? That's the question. Should any of us rejoice over someone else losing their life? I can't see it. Should we rejoice over anyone being shunned from the church? I can't see it. And even though we can be comforted that God's ways are going to happen anyways, that he is so strong and he is so sovereign, and yes, his way will win out, I still want to choose correctly. I don't want to be at the end of my days. I don't know what this looks like. I don't have the theology worked out exactly. But I feel like at the end of our days, we will stand before the Lord and we will play back our entire lives. And we will look at the choices that we've made. And I wonder if at times I will find myself on the wrong side of an issue. Can you imagine that? I'm on the wrong side that Jesus would choose. I'm over here. He's over there based on a decision that I had made. We, we might not murder people. But when someone comes to us and they've been called by God to do something, that God has said that they're worthy of respect and they're worthy of love, and they come to you and we dismiss them, we say, oh, you don't understand. You're, you're too young to understand. You, oh, really? God's got a plan for you? Oh, my gosh, I know your life. There's no possible way God has a plan for you. That we are, in fact, murdering them in a sense. That we are standing with arm stretched out in direct opposition to the words that, or to the ways that God wants to live on the earth. That frightens me. I, I plead with the Lord, do not allow me to be on the wrong side. So my question then remains, as I get ready to finish here, is how do we make sure that we're not on the wrong side? How do we know what the right side is? Well, I think Reuben gives us an example that he chooses life and I think he chooses God's commands, right? God says, thou shalt not kill. I think if we start there, that's a good thing, right? Let's start with the commands. The issue there sometimes is that there are so many in the Old Testament. Did you know there are 613 separate commands in the Old Testament? 248 thou, thou shalt, you know, I'll allow it. And then 365 thou shalt not. And we can get caught up into all of that. In fact, we see as we read the New Testament that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they got caught up in living that legalism. So here's what I suggest. Not just follow God's commands, but follow God's example. That God who is invisible sent his son Jesus to be the image of the invisible. Jesus Christ is our example. He is the person given to us that we might model our lives after. In fact, the Bible tells us that he is transforming us into the image of Christ. We should model our lives like Jesus so in Matthew chapter 22, when the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, Rabbi, Rabbi, of the commandments in the Old Testament, the 613 thou shalts and shalt nots, which one is the greatest, O Rabbi, tell us. And Jesus says these great words. He says, the first commandment is this. The first and greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, your mind, and your strength. Ladies and gentlemen, if, if I could just encourage you into one thing it is to love God first and foremost and the outflow of how you deal with people will come from that 
I love God as creator who created every person in the image of himself and that person is worthy of more respect than I want to give them right now. The second commandment Jesus said is like the first and is to love your neighbor as yourself. That we focus on those things. And in so doing, I don't think we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of history. I don't think we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of the situation. But what do I know? (laughs) A friend of mine asked me this morning, Jeff, how are you feeling? And without a thought, I said these words. I think I'm worried. I'm worried. And and immediately my mind went to Matthew chapter 6. Don't be anxious. Don't worry for tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. But I I can't help but shake this thinking. And I don't know that I'm worried for uh, the church, you know, little C renaissance or the church capital C. I don't know, but I feel like the church is is at a crossroads of sorts. That if if we don't learn to see people for who they are, that we run the risk of treating them like Joseph's brothers did. And to throw people into pits and to disregard who they are as people. I'm nervous for the church. I'll be honest with you. I, don't, I, don't, I can't shake it. I can't fix it, obviously. But I do feel a specific call as a, the role of a shepherd here. And if I can do a thing that the Lord would call me to, it is to at least encourage the, the few bodies that would come in and listen to me. The few, the few minds that would come in and contemplate these things, much like I did on that December 30th in 2006, that I would be accosted by my own way of thinking so that God could rescue me out of that. I want to pray for us. The band's going to come back up and we're going to spend time in worship. And at any time during this prayer, if you agree with me, I encourage you to just say amen. I mean, we are Pentecostal. You can scream it if you want. <laughs> I'm kidding. Please don't. <laughs> that, that, that scares people. <laughs> All right, security. (laughs) God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that, that he would leave heaven, bankrupt himself, and come to earth to the lowliest of positions to be with us the most deplorable, wicked, cruel creatures you have ever created. God, we thank you that Jesus was willing to do this. We thank you, Jesus, that you would lay your body on a cross and you would receive punishment for sin that you yourself have never created that we might be released from the penalty of sin. That you were punished on our behalf, that you received death that we were due and then when you were raised to life that we too have the opportunity to be raised into newness of life God I I pray that this this new life would be founded on you and and how you see the world and we would model our lives after your son Jesus and if ever we err on the side of labels or stereotypes that you would quickly correct us and remind us that that person is in fact my son or my daughter 
Lord, we were all blind once and you opened our eyes and we pray until their eyes are opened in, in the work that you and you alone do that we would not mistreat people. That we would not mistreat them based on <laughs> the, the buckets of sorts that we throw them into. God, we thank you for our time together. We ask that you, you help us navigate this thing called life and that, that you encourage us along the way. Help us to be people of the word, to understand the standard of truth that you have made available to us. Help us to understand how Jesus responded to people who were sinful, lost, broken, and, and help us to model our lives after him. God, we love you and we thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.